What's up, nerds? Welcome back to a very special episode of Boss Science, a podcast where I interview wicked smart people and learn all about the latest and greatest scientific research going on in Boston. I'm your host, the marvelous Grace Ingalls, and in today's episode, we're going to be celebrating a very special milestone in any podcast journey. Today, we're celebrating the one-year anniversary of Boss Science. And I... Oh, (laughs) stop, don't. Oh, thank you, thank you. That's right, Boss Science has been going for a year. Well, a year and a month or so. You know, again, this podcasting stuff, it takes a while. This first year on the podcast, um, it's, it's been a roller coaster ride. I won't lie. We had, obviously, COVID-19 pandemic hit, which nobody could have prepared for. I moved my entire apartment and my cat, which is no easy feat. And I ended up switching jobs, which was wild. And throughout that entire process, Boss Science stayed alive. It definitely wasn't easy, but it was always worth it. I absolutely loved meeting all of the wicked smart scientists that you heard on the show. I loved learning about the science across all ranges of STEM, and I loved sharing it with you guys. It's been an amazing experience being able to bring my passion to life and to celebrate officially making it through this year. I'm very excited to be able to announce that Boss Science now has its very own Patreon account a platform where you guys, the listeners, can donate any amount, small or large, on a monthly basis to help make the show even better. So why bother donating? There are plenty of things to put your money towards. Why me? Well, just so you know, I do all of this stuff for the podcast. Researching, interviewing, recording, editing, writing, producing, posting, all on my own. It's all me, baby. And uh, it makes for slow going to post the episodes since... Believe it or not, I also work full-time. By donating even just $1 a month, you can help support the show so that I can pay others to do some of the work, which means getting more episodes to you in less time. And isn't that what we're all here for? So what's in it for you? Well, aside from getting you better content faster, with your Patreon donation, you can get my eternal gratitude, always, a shout-out in the episodes, bonus content from interviews, monthly videos of me answering science trivia or playing science drinking games, behind-the-scenes pictures and videos of me making the show, and of course, bloopers, which if you stick around till the very end of the episode, I'll give you a sneak peek of what those are. This podcast has been such an amazing experience for me. I love being able to share my passion with you guys. And I want to keep doing it, and I want to do a better job at it. So I need a little help from my friends. That's you. But enough of the shameless begging for money. Let's get back to the actual episode. So in honor of one year of the show, I thought that we could take a look back and highlight some of the boss science that we learned about over the last year. Let's start at the very beginning. Let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. 
with the first ever Boss Science episode, which features the work done at the research group Fibers at MIT, which, fun fact, is the only interview that I've ever done for the show in person. Thanks again, COVID. This episode was all about functional fibers, special fibers made with materials like semiconductors and insulators that basically give these fibers superpowers. I first talked with the researchers to learn more about how they use these fibers in their work. Like Juliette Alain, who uses fibers containing LEDs for brain research. Optogenetically modified neurons, you basically bring a virus that infects the neurons and it will add a channel on the membrane of the neuron and this channel is light sensitive. And so when you shine light on the neuron, this ion channel will open and then you create an action potential. So you make the neuron fire that way. And the idea is that with these very, very thin fibers that have an LED that will be placed on the tip of them, for example, you can go dig in the brain or in the spinal cord, just hit the spot that you want to stimulate, and then the fiber is connected externally and you just send current, light up the LED, and then you can stimulate the neurons that way. So what type of situations would you need to have these probes that will stimulate neurons? How would you use this in like a medical or research setting? So now it's mostly used in research for studying new pathways because we obviously don't know most of the pathways in our neural system. So if you're able to stimulate a very specific area and then record somewhere else, you can kind of infer the different chains of neuron firing in your neural system. How wild is that? We also get to hear about how researchers like Tural Kudiev are creating ultra-smart material-releasing fibers using MEMS technology. So why is it important? Because especially if you want to release some kind of insect repellent, if you want to release some kind of perfume, if you want to release smart bandage case, if you want to release drug, so you need some kind of stimulation. And MEMS is capable to provide this uh, stimulation. The uniqueness of our fiber is that our fiber can combine different domains, like so microfluidic and MEMS on the same soft structure is actually unique. On one side, you have a microfluidics, which can be a liquid form of this material. Then you can release different chemicals for different purposes, like perfume, as I said, or insect repellent or drug delivery. So you mentioned the smart bandage. So this could be used in the future. You have some sort of cut abrasion. You could have different types of medications that, you know, will be like, okay, it's time for the pain medication, time for the, you know, antibiotic, time for the inflammation control. And this could all be done just in one bandage. Exactly. Exactly. And especially if it uh, combined with some kind of sensors or some kind of artificial intelligence, I'm a predictive way of the release of this drug. So that's actually a next level. That's really cool. So freaking cool. And if you thought it couldn't get any cooler than that, you're wrong. Because we learned from researcher Gabriel Loke how he can create futuristic 3D printed structures with device functionality using these functional fibers. Yeah, you can think about conventional 3D printing, usually think about the speed of printing or what kind of materials you can print, but you don't really get into what kind of functions your 3D printer structures can exhibit. And so this paper kind of tackle into this area where we introduce a whole new approach to be able to print 3D structures with device functionality. 
So this device functionality, it, it can be anything that you think about. It can either be a light emitting structure, or you can have a 3D structure that detect light, or you can have perhaps you know, a 3D structure that has some energy storage in it. Basically, any kind of devices that you see around you, what we are trying to do here is to 3D print that structure. And that's going to exhibit the same kind of device functions that you see around you. We topped off this episode with an interview with the head of the lab, Professor Yol Fink. Professor Fink tells us why he started researching fibers to begin with. Well, fibers are quite unusual. First of all, they're among the most ubiquitous forms of materials we have around us, both in the natural world, a lot of our trees and even the body are made of fibrous materials and fibrous structures. Certainly synthetic structures like fabrics, composites, non-wovens, curtains and drapes, all are made of fibers. And so fibers really surround us. And so I felt that this is an area that currently may not be getting enough research attention. At least on the face of it, it appear that many areas, the fundamental capabilities of these fabrics haven't changed much over time. And so the question we had was, could reimagining a fiber breathe a new functional life into fabrics and really enable all these surfaces that are so close to us? The challenge there was trying to manufacture or fabricate or process a fiber that had dozens of layers, each one of them a micron in its thickness, but uniform over a length scale of kilometers. It's sort of like controlling an object, the thickness of your finger between the earth and the moon. The key question was, could you make a fiber out of two very different materials and achieve these tremendous scales, uh, length on the one hand, but also layer thickness on the other. And that disparity was mind-boggling. In the process, we started making fibers that had combinations of semiconductors and insulators, and it became, at some point, obvious that having a semiconductor and an insulator opens the prospect or the opportunity to add a metal to it, add a conductor. Once you have those three materials, where you could start realizing devices and fibers. And that led us to this question of, whether fibers could have much higher level, much more sophisticated level of functionality, similar to electronic systems and devices like smartphones. Professor Fink tells us what excites him about this field, and also what we can expect to see from functional fibers in the future. What gets me excited is this ability to transform this undervalued commodity surface that is pretty much the closest thing that we have on us or the closest thing physically to us, to our hearts. I strongly believe that we're living in the final years of fabrics as we know them. And I strongly feel that when we look back at this period, we're gonna see the transformation of fabrics as we know them that will really be centered around this period of time. So fibers are gonna become more and more functional. Fibers are going to be able to store information. Fibers are going to be able to communicate. Fibers are going to be able to sense. Fibers are going to be able to pick up sound. Fibers are going to be able to release materials, and so on and so forth. You know, I think we're living through a time now that's similar to the advent of computation uh, or personal computation, where we, at some point, all of us started having a personal computer. And I think we're on our way to all of us having a fabric computer. 
Would this be something where you could toss your smartphone and throw on a sweater and head out yeah. the door and you'd be all yeah. set, ready to go? Absolutely. That would be really fantastic. Absolutely. I think we're, we're definitely on our way there. Wow. Such an exciting episode. How can you not love that? Let's move on to our next throwback, which happens to be Boss Science's first ever two-part episode. Here, we head to Northeastern University to talk with the Webster Nanomedicine Lab, and we take our first dive into the world of nanotechnology. In part one, we talk to PhD student David Medina, who's working on using natural nanoparticles that are actually made by bacteria cells. It's awesome how he found this out too. How did you guys come across this phenomenon? How did you discover that you could create nanoparticles using bacteria? So actually, we did not discover this. It was a process that was known from the 1970s, if I remember correctly. They discovered that bacteria could do this, but they didn't use it for anything. When I came here, I decided, let's take these bacteria that can make nanoparticles and let's use them to fight bacteria to see if they can be used as antimicrobials. And what happened is, like, happened in science, it was by mistake. I was really tired one day, and I mislabeled a few tubes. And what happened is that we found that some bacteria that were not supposed to do that, they were able to produce nanoparticles. Wow. Happy accident, I guess. What's really cool about these bacteria-made nanoparticles is that researchers have found out that these nanoparticles can actually target and destroy the same type of bacteria cells that made it. With the process that we patented, we are able to extract these nanoparticles. Once we collect them and we test them with a bunch of different bacteria, they show selectivity to the parent cells. And we have seen this behavior in all of them. The important thing and the key component here is that we keep them in the same stage like if they were inside the bacteria. And that's why they are selective. Otherwise, they would not. So you can be sure that they're not going to be targeting other cells based on this. Yes, we can tailor that. I guess no love for mama and papa bacteria cell. We also get to learn why bacteria even started making nanoparticles in the first place. What happened is that you have a bunch of bacteria growing in a space with something that is supposed to kill them. And they are going to die, but some of them are going to learn that if they want to survive, they have to take care of that problem. So what happens is that they take the problem, and the only way to cope with that is to produce nanoparticles. The nanoparticles are like something that they produce in order to survive. So what has the Webster Nanomedicine Lab been able to use these bacteria-made nanoparticles for? In the lab, we saw the antimicrobial potential. We also use them as anti-cancer agents because they are really good killers of cancer cells. They really target in an efficient way, for instance, melanoma. So we're exploring that way as well. And also we found that they can be easily applied in coatings or in bandages. So we are exploring actually with a company that we spin out a few months ago how to use them for antimicrobial bandages in skin bacteria infections. We have explored a few other applications other than just medicine. For instance, we wanted to use them as antimicrobials in the cooling towers of nuclear plants because there is a huge problem with bacteria. So basically, every place where bacteria can cause a problem, actually, I think that you can apply these nanoparticles. And that's something we're exploring with different departments. 
But I think that the applications are endless. We just need the time to really understand what is happening. I love it. I'm still blown away by these bacteria-made nanoparticles. David's got a lot of cool stuff that he's working on in the lab, but he's not just a researcher. He's also the founder of the Green Chemistry Research Division at Northeastern University. The Green Chemistry Research Division that we created in this lab when I came here to the States, where whole idea was to use green chemistry, green nanotechnology, so nature, to make nanoparticles that can be done otherwise using chemistry, but in a better way for the environment and for society. When I came here, no one was working on that. It was my first year as PhD student. So what I did was to take a few of my students and just say, okay, we're going to focus on this. Do you want to be part of this team? And I just wanted to unify the people that I was working with in just one goal. More students came after them. We had more and more projects, all of them involved in the green nanotechnology side of science. And at the end, we had this family. That's what I can call them, actually. And we have had up to 15 students at the same time. So many people have come after this, and it's really more than a division, a team, or everything. It's a family of people just with the same vision and mission. It's really nice to work here. Did you smile when you heard that? I did. I always do. So we say thank you to David, and we head off to part two of the Nature Meets Nanomedicine episode where we talk to the head of the lab, Professor Thomas Webster, who tells us the story about the one pivotal moment that ended up defining not only his passion, but his career for the rest of his life. Yeah, I think most professors would say it was their PhD thesis that got them interested. So when I look back at why I chose the topic I did for my PhD thesis, I was reminded of when I was six years old, I was hit by a car and I broke the largest bone in my body, in our bodies, the femur. But I was fascinated on how bones can heal. You know, I never needed an implant. I was young enough. The bones were growing, so it healed on its own. And it really got me stimulated into not only medicine, but kind of engineering and how could you build better bone. And I think from that one experience in my life, here I am, what, 43 years later, still looking at the body and how you can engineer better body parts. So what did Professor Webster do with his interest in bone healing? He decided to try and create better implants using inspiration from nature, and a few simple ideas. We don't have implants that fully restore functional capability in the orthopedic area. You know, many times they get infected. Many times after 15, 20 years, the the implant separates from the bone. Immediately you can't function. You can't put weight on that implant. So you have to have a revision surgery. So we had an idea as simple as it sounds, and you know, this is the most simple idea in the world, to look at bone itself and see what is it in bone that we can mimic in these materials, titanium, you know, other kind of metals that we're creating implants out of. And one of the things that we did not see anybody mimicking was the nano structure, the nano nature of our bone itself. 
So one of the things we knew that bone itself is made up of these little nanocrystals, but yet when you looked at what we were implanting, nobody was looking at this size range. So our hypothesis was, would bone grow better on materials that mimic the nano nature of your bone compared to the titanium materials that were implanted at that time? A lot of people turn this into biologically inspired, right? Or mimicking the body. But back then it was, you know, can we trick bone cells into making bone more on these nano materials than, than micron materials? And you might imagine, since we're still doing this research today, only in a much more sophisticated manner, that the answer is yes. You know, bone cells do care. And they will regrow bone faster on these nanomaterials. Nowadays, Professor Webster doesn't just work on designing nanofeatured implants. He also studies how different types of nanoparticles can be used to kill bacteria and viruses. We have developed a way to make selenium nanoparticles. We can add these to infections. We can add these to tumors. And they kill those cells. We have a spray for this. So we could spray the computer screen. And because they're nanometer, they don't influence how the computer screen looks or anything that we spray, but they will keep bacteria from attaching and they will keep viruses from attaching. We think there's a real promise for this chemistry of selenium, not only thinking of application of these nanomaterials in the body, but on doorknobs, computer screens, iPhones, not thinking of using bleach on a surface, you know, or isopropyl alcohol every hour, but create that surface itself to reduce contamination and you'll get a lot less spreading. So nanoparticles have been a big part of nanomedicine, especially in the cancer area. And I can show you a gold nanoparticle. So here's some gold nanoparticles. These are great nanoparticles because they can respond to infrared wavelengths to heat up. So if you were able to get this into a cancerous tumor in your body, you then subjected the tumor to infrared, they would heat up. Cancer cells are much more sensitive to heat than healthy cells. So voila, you have a way to selectively kill cancer cells rather than chemotherapy, which kills everything. So that whole idea that's used in cancer therapy could be used to deactivate a virus. And if you change the structure of a virus, it then cannot attach to a cell membrane, it can't enter the cell, and it can't replicate. We have seen the ability to do this with other viruses. But I do think there is a great promise to spray these materials onto surfaces Spraying selenium, for example, we've seen without photothermal activation works, but certainly you could envision a gold spray onto a surface and you just subject that surface to infrared. The end of the day or every hour, whatever the time frequency is, you then cause the gold nanoparticles that are on the surface to heat up to then deactivate something that might have absorbed during that day. So the field of nanoparticles for prevention, for diagnosis, for therapy, I think is, is very strong. It's very promising. I had such an amazing time interviewing the Webster Nanomedicine Lab. 
I decided to find us another amazing nanomedicine lab to interview. Which brings us to my alma mater, Boston University, where we talked to the Nanomedicine and Medical Acoustics Lab. This lab, called the Nanometal for short, is all about using ultrasound technology to develop new types of non-invasive techniques and treatments. A lot of the work that's being done in this lab is based on the use of tiny gas bubbles, called microbubbles, that are easy to make and safe to put in the body. Former PhD student, the now Dr. Chen Guangpang, tells us how ultrasound can be used to manipulate these microbubbles in all sorts of ways. So this uh, microbubble can essentially oscillate under this change pressure field, which is generated by focus ultrasound. So we use focus ultrasound to generate this oscillation of microbubbles, and then the oscillation of microbubbles could exert physical stress onto surrounding environments, either blood vessels or some tissue organs directly, so that we can generate bioeffects as we need to. And you know, based on how hard we drive these bubbles, we have totally different regimes of uh, bioeffects, either from you know just the blood-brain barrier disruption, which we might go into a little bit later towards directly uh, rupture the blood vessel, which in here, we want to rupture the tumor vasculatures so that we can essentially damage the tumor in this way. So you essentially use the same system to drive the microbubble, but depending on how much power you put into the ultrasound system, this microbubble can respond totally differently. One awesome use for these microbubbles is using them as a way to bypass what's known as the blood-brain barrier, a real pain-in-the-ass layer of cells that guards our brain and makes it so hard for doctors to get any sort of drug treatment to your noggin. So essentially, we know that microbubble exists in the blood vasculatures. With the microbubbles inside these vasculatures, if we oscillate these microbubbles with ultrasound, this oscillation of microbubble could lose the connection between cells of this uh, blood-brain barrier so that we can create a little bit space, just enough, to allow molecules to get across this blood-brain barrier so that we can effectively deliver therapeutic agents across the blood-brain barrier and treat uh, you know, whatever the brain disease is we want to treat, let's say neurodegenerative disease or brain tumors. Yeah, so that's the idea, kind of like doing a massage to the blood vessels and the massage can be recovered you know, shortly after the treatments. So that's actually quite important because we, we really want this technology to be used safely uh, in the body. I think that's the beauty of this technology that patients can just walk in and have the treatment and just walk out without even feel any pains and the treatments are done. So that's pretty awesome. Hell yeah, that's pretty awesome. Another pretty awesome way that these researchers can use microbubbles is to create uber precise maps of the blood vasculature system. Actually, that's a really hot research topic right now. Is called super resolution ultrasound. And previously, people used ultrasound to just see the echoes from the bubbles. So this microbubble only exists in the blood vasculature so that you essentially highlight the vasculatures using this microbubble. It's called uh, ultrasound geography. And researchers are really trying to push it even further by increasing the resolution that they can image the single bubbles. So instead of you see the blood vessels, you can see a single bubbles moving in the body so that you can really see what's actually going on. And this has been used to image the baby's brain development when the baby is still, uh, you know, in his mom. Yeah. So I think that's super excited to see that there are a lot of cool research going on to just 
trying to push this imaging uh, technology forward. Wow. Passing the blood-brain barrier, mapping the body's blood vessels. Can microbubbles get any cooler? Uh-huh. Yes, they can. Because we learned that microbubbles can also form what's called a nanoemulsion, Chengguang's topic for his PhD dissertation. Yeah, so I think one important concept that is the core of my dissertation is called acoustic droplet vaporization. So just as kind of as the name suggests, it means using sound to vaporize uh, nano-sized droplets. So that, that is the idea. So we know that we have microbubbles, right? So what if we compress these microbubbles and force the gas to convert it into the liquid? So that was exactly I used for my dissertation. It's called nano-emotion with nano-droplets. And uh, remember, we can use ultrasound to create uh, a change pressure field. And if the pressure is uh, lower than the ambient pressure, we essentially create kind of like creating a local vacuum. And this vacuum can vaporize these droplets into microbubbles so that we have ultrasound activable agents that we can targetedly activate everywhere as long as there's blood vasculatures in the body. So what's a nanoemulsion good for? How about destroying tumors, also known as tumor ablation? Yeah, so ablation is more or less kind of like an alternative to surgery. Mm-hmm. So it's mechanically or physically remove or destroy the tumor or sometimes even liquefy the tumor in the body. So it's quite different than you know, delivering our drugs or using, uh, let's say, uh, therapeutics to go against tumors. And in my study, I specifically activate this droplets at really high power so that the inertial cavitation or inertial oscillation of this droplet is going to be really, really strong. And just imagine this droplet can grow several millimeter from micrometer. And this growth of the microbubble could displace the tissue and even liquefy the tissue and generate damage to the tumors directly. So um, essentially, that's how I, using these droplets to damage the tumors and pretty much not relying on the chemotherapeutics or any therapeutic agent. But you can obviously combine this therapeutic agent with this mechanical ablation techniques because in reality, people use surgery combined with chemotherapeutics and why not combine high-intensity focus ultrasound ablation with chemotherapeutic and even radiation. So let's just recap real quick. Scientists are able to use sound waves to make tiny droplets of liquid explode inside the body, which in the process destroys tumors. Science is so cool. Of course, the episode wouldn't be complete without a talk with the founder of the lab, Professor Tyrone Porter. Professor Porter tells us why ultrasound got his attention in the first place. And for me, it was like, it's sound. I mean, when you think of sound, you think of people talking, you think of music, and I think everybody knows about diagnostic ultrasound for imaging a developing fetus or a baby. But I found out that there was so much more untapped potential for ultrasound for focusing it and burning, for example, a solid tumor, right? Which actually just got approved by the FDA for treating prostate cancer a couple of years ago. So this very minimally invasive way of literally just burning and destroying in a very, very controlled manner with image guidance to monitor the temperature, the heating, still non-invasive, not inserting any probes into the tissue, but you can destroy tissue just by heating up that tumor. 
in a very, very controlled manner. But this is all non-invasive, right? But once I learned, I was hooked. I was hooked as soon as I found out about all the capabilities, all the potential that was out there. And happy to say I've been one of the leading voices in that area for the last eight, seven, eight, nine, ten years. Wow. And different ways that you can use ultrasound for treating different types of medical conditions. And it's been very rewarding to be a leader in that field. And what an incredible leader he has been. But he's not done making waves in the field of ultrasound yet. Oops, another pun for you, free of charge. Professor Porter tells us how ultrasound can be used for brain research and even as a completely non-invasive way to treat brain diseases. The uh, brain applications of ultrasound proactively moved into that space. Mm -hmm. And for a couple of reasons. One is, as I mentioned earlier, treatment or management of brain pathologies, neuropathologies, very limited options. We don't really fully understand how memories are created, how they're saved and stored. We don't really fully understand how um, you end up with these uh, breakdowns in neural networks and pathways. Yeah. We don't fully understand that just yet. So the brain, at least in terms of the body, is kind of the spinal frontier. And so there is certainly is a lot of research that's going on just to better understand how the brain works, right? But there also is definitely remains a need for treating the brain once it's diseased or starts to break down. Sure. And ultrasound does have the capacity for, once again, either destroying brain tumors, brain cancer, and the lifespan of a person once they're diagnosed is no longer than, on average, is no longer than 15 months, yeah. 15 or 16 months. So it's, it's really short. There also is currently no sort of approved standard method for treating Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, right? When you just have these misfirings in the circuitry in the brain. But how are you going to get access? How do you get to those parts of the brain, right? In a very safe way. Because just sort of opening, doing a craniotomy and just sticking your hands and your tools into the brain, once again, it goes back to this whole barbaric approach to treating cancer with poisons. Yeah. So is there a better way to do this? Turns out that ultrasound was approved last year or two years ago for treating what's known as a central tremor. Turns out that the thalamus ends up being the key area in the brain where you, you see these misfirings, right? It's just sort of abnormal firing and behavior in the thalamus, which has an impact on people's mobility. Yeah. Um, and so you see people that shake and tremor and it, it's hard for them to drink out of a cup. Wow. It's hard for them to write with a pen or a pencil. It's hard for them to tie a tie. And there was clinical trials that had really amazing results that led to the FDA approved where you just use focus ultrasound, direct a number of different beams that all converge at the thalamus and burn the thalamus and only the thalamus. And it's an in and out patient procedure. And the patients leave with, they're able to write their names. They're able to hold a cup of water without wow. shaking and spilling. That in itself demonstrates the potential and the capacity to do this in a very sort of safe way. And again, Hearing how this ultrasound technology can be used to zap your brain and fix a life-changing problem, I have to ask, are we sure this isn't magic? 
because I'm not. But I guess, what is magic but science we don't understand yet? Oh man, how awesome was that throwback? I can't believe we covered so many types of boss-ass science all in one year. Each episode was so different, but also so amazing. I love the range of research that's being done in Boston. It blows me away every time. But I'm not the only one who loves Boston. Each episode, I ask my guests what they love about Boston. And I got a lot of great responses. Some guests loved the cute houses. Others loved the killer sports team. One guest loved the big city feeling, but the small town distance. And I even had one person who loved the tea. Probably just them, but still. I think, though, that when it comes to why I love Boston, Professor Porter says it best. So just in Boston in general, so the experience has been really amazing in a lot of ways because of the intellectual capital this year. And so you can find an expert in just about any area, especially in the sciences, especially in STEM and in medicine. You can find an expert. So that has been really rewarding. There's been a lot of opportunity to talk with people about different ideas, research ideas. The other one has been, so, so Boston truly is a melting pot. You can find all different types of ideologies, philosophies, cultures, backgrounds, you can find in Boston. And I have been in other cities where that is not necessarily the case. I'm not gonna name any cities, um, put them on blast. All right, we don't need to call out names. <laughs> Many of the cities in a good number of the states are homogenous. And so yeah. that diversity of thought, that diversity of ancestry, ethnicity, uh, gender, um, sexual orientation, you can find that in Boston. And that has been definitely thinking just beyond myself, but also exposing our kids to that that people have different philosophies and different beliefs, and that's okay. We're all different. You know, we all have different experiences and different upbringings, and that's fine. And I think that's very enlightening, and I think it makes us better as human beings to actually see that. I've enjoyed that part of Boston. I'm going to miss that uh, moving away. Couldn't have said it better myself. It's been a wonderful year of learning. Thank you all for coming along for the ride with me. You guys are the reason that I spend my nights writing and editing rather than drinking and Netflixing. Okay, I do a little of that too. I'm only human. But I love that I get to share the amazing science of Boston with you. And I promise that this next year will have just as much and maybe even more boss-ass science. If you want to keep up with the show for all the future episodes, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get your podcasts. To hear news about upcoming episodes and pictures to go along with them, you can follow the show at BOS Science on Instagram and Twitter, or join the Facebook group at Boss Science Podcast. If you want to reach out to me to suggest a guest for the show or a soundbite topic I should cover, you can email me at bosciencepodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to support the show for $0, you can rate and write a review on iTunes. Each episode, I read a fresh review because I love them so much, and it might be yours that I read next. And if you want to support the show for real money, you can head over to www.patreon.com slash bosscience 
and give me some of your hard-earned cash in exchange for good vibes and some fun stuff. Fun stuff such as bloopers! That's right, you stuck it out all the way to the end, and now you get your reward. A sneak peek at the Patreon-only blooper reels. Each blooper reel will be unique, but you can probably expect to hear me messing up my lines. And has created a national phototype. I'm sorry, that's not, it's proto, photo, phototyping. I wonder what that is. Where I post about upcoming epi- episode. <laughs> or you can enjoy me laughing at my own jokes. And help to provide critical early detection of infection. <laughs> detection of infection, God. You can hear my ADHD come out to play as I get distracted by a dog outside my window. Oh, good papa. Oh, you do such a good walk. Such a good walk. For sure, you'll hear me singing. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. You might just hear me forget how to speak English. Talk about a two-in-one punch. No, that's not it. Talk about a one-two punch. And lastly, but certainly not least, you'll hear me showing the utmost confidence in myself and in the show. Bye! Oh my god, praise. I think that's finally fucking done. Alright, hopefully it doesn't sound terrible. But that's all the bloopers you're getting for now. If you want more, you can donate for as little as $1 a month. And with dozens of recordings already in the books and more to come, you can bet there'll be some good ones on there for you to listen to. Okay, I think that's it. I think I got all of it in there. I'll see you guys on the next episode, where I talk to some wicked smart people and learn about some boss-ass science. Bye!